Um, my name is Jordan, and I normally lead worship here at Remedy. Um, most of you guys know that. Um, but this week, FUD, our pastor, is actually um, preaching at another Acts 29 church. Um, we're part of the Acts 29 network here at Remini, and um, so Fudd is actually at a church called Exodus Church this morning, uh, preaching for them, so he asked me to come and share a message, and we're currently in a series, um, in a, a mini-series, uh, in the book of First Kings and Second Kings, and we are, we're kind of traveling through the Bible together as a church, and so this morning we've landed at the very end of Second Kings, that's kind of what the video is about, you heard the Downton tune. Right, it's it's called royal lands. We're talking about different kings, um, and so this morning we're going to be in Second Kings chapter eighteen and nineteen, and the sermon title this morning is "Trust Your King." Trust your king. We're going to be in Second Kings chapter eighteen and nineteen. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, um, eighteen and nineteen of Second Kings. We'll start in uh, chapter eighteen. So go ahead and turn there. Um, every week at my community group, if you're in my community group, then you know this. Um, I always, no matter what the sermon content is about, no matter what we've talked about that week, I always ask a question that relates to doubt. And it's basically the same question every week. It's basically, um, what, are your, what are your doubts about this? What are your doubts about what you've heard this past week? And the reason that I do that. Um, is because I think there is something that is absolutely central to the life of every single believer, and there's a battle that is constantly taking place in all of our hearts um, as followers of Jesus, and that is, do we trust God? Do we trust Him? And and are we approaching our doubts and actually looking at them? Um, And so this morning, that's... That's really where the text is going to lead us, um, is, is to, to trust our king more deeply. So uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Hezekiah, who was uh, a king of Judah. The, um, the nation of Israel split into two nations after Solomon, uh, after Solomon died, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, Judah, I believe, is the southern kingdom, and Hezekiah is the king of this kingdom. So just to give us a, a kind of a, a snapshot or a look at, at Hezekiah's life, I'm just going to read um, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I apologize, we're not going to get to read the whole passage because it's two chapters and it's really lengthy, um, but we are going to look at a lot of the key moments in this story, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase um, and tell the story for you so that you have a good idea. Hopefully you were able to read it this week in the journey so that you have a good grasp of it. Um, But 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 8, let's go ahead and read. It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. 
so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Tony Merida, in his commentary on this passage, says that Hezekiah um, was known more than anything for his trust and known more than really any other king for his trust. He says it this way, the main virtue highlighted in Hezekiah's life is his trust. Solomon is known for his wisdom. Josiah will be known for his reforms. Hezekiah is known for his unparalleled trust. Right, that's verse 6, verse 5 and 6. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before or after him. So we're going to look at um, today, this is this verses 1 through 8, it's kind of an overview of Hezekiah's whole, whole life. Um, and we're going to continue in this passage, and it's actually going to show us a story where Hezekiah, um, his trust was tried, and we're going to get to see Hezekiah living out what, what trust looks like in, in everyday life of a king of Judah. Um, so we'll be doing that. But one, um, one thing that I want to point out before we start anything, before we jump into this story, is we need to notice something about what Hezekiah did and how his trust was intimately connected to this. And so the first thing that you might want to write down if you're taking notes today is that the trust, um, that trust in God begins with the restoration of true worship. Trust in God begins with the restoration of true worship. What do we mean by that? Well, let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. Right? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Right? So Hezekiah is taking these um, false places of worship. Right? The, the people of Judah have, they're, they're in Jerusalem, so they have the temple. They don't need these high places of worship. They don't need this bronze serpent that Moses has made. And it's actually kind of amazing to me that this bronze serpent, literally since the days of Moses, they've been worshiping at, as an idol. And it's taken this long for Hezekiah to finally break this idol of his people. So what does that have to do with trust? My friend sent me a, um, a really great devotion on worship this past week, and I just thought it was so um, perfect for really this, this concept of this idea. It says this, We all attach our identity, our hopes and dreams, our inner sense of well-being, and our meaning and purpose to something. We all tend to surrender to and serve what we think will give us life. We all tend to surrender to and serve what we think will give us life. I'll only ever trust something or someone. I'll only ever put my full devotion and my full hope on something or someone that I 
uh, believe can actually give me life or purpose or um, can rescue me. And so for us, a lot of times that's an idol. We honestly put our hope and our trust and said, this thing can give me relief. This thing can give me hope. This thing can give me peace. Um, when I was like seven or eight years old, I uh, went to the Coke factory with my church. And has anybody ever been to the Coke factory? Just a few people, okay. Well, if you've never been to the Coke factory, then you don't know. Um, but there's this room in the Coke factory, uh, and it's the tasting room. And you can literally taste like all the sodas that Coke makes in the whole world. And there's like hundreds of them. And um, so I went on this trip. I was like seven or eight years old with my church. And there was this older group of students. And um, I, they like went to camp with us and they went on all the field. They were kind of like chaperones, but they were high school or middle school. I don't really remember. I just remember thinking that they were awesome. <laughs> and like whatever they were doing, I was going to do that too. Like I was going to follow those guys and do whatever they wanted. Um, so we're all at the Coke factory and I'm tasting all the drinks and there's not a single drink that I've tried that I don't absolutely love. Like they're all amazing. And these guys run up to me and they're like, try this, try this, try this drink. This is the best one so far. And without thinking twice, I grab it and I just like slurp it down. Well, if you know anything about the Coke factory and if you know anything about the tasting room, then you also know that there is one soda that you don't drink. And it's called Beverly. And it's this Italian soda. And it's, it's the one, like people take pictures of it and they like post it, you know, and they're like, oh, look, it's Beverly, the infamously bad tasting drink. I mean, this drink makes you like want to throw up. It's so absolutely terrible. And so nobody drinks it, but everybody like, oh my gosh. Well, the drink that these guys had given me was not delicious or tasty, it was Beverly. And as a seven-year-old, my mind is going, I just drank this. This tastes terrible. And my body agreed. <laughs> and I literally threw up right in the middle of the Coke factory. I mean, there's like, tour there's like hundreds of tourists around, and then I'm just like seven-year-old me, just right in the middle of the floor. It was really terrible. And probably one of the more embarrassing like moments of my young childhood. And I tell that story because I, as a, as a seven-year-old, you know, pre-faith in Jesus, put 100% of my hope on these guys, on, these, on this group of kids. And they failed me. Like, they failed me miserably in that moment. I thought, it doesn't matter what they give me, it's going to be good. But it, but it wasn't. And... Um, and it, that broke my trust in them. Like, it deeply broke my trust in them, right? Um, and so, like, when, when we're looking at trusting God, we have to start with an understanding that, like, that He's really the only one that's worthy of our, of our, of our worship. He's really the only one that's, that's worthy of us pouring our whole life into. And before we can ever talk about, like, trusting Him on a, on a day-to-day basis, we need to recognize like where, where are we failing at true worship where are we failing at the greatest commandments which is love the lord your god with all your heart mind and strength and soul so maybe um before we go any further i'd like us to just take a second and pray 
and 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 I'll just ask, what's what's the one thing that you think gives you life more than God? You know what it is already. And let's just take like thirty seconds and and pray and just ask God, God, I know I trust that more than you sometimes. Please take it from me. And and take a moment to just repent of, of that. Let's let's do that and I'll kind of pray over us as we do that. God, we just we come before you and um, I know even for me personally, exercising trust in you is something that is really difficult to do on a day-to-day basis. And so God, I just ask that you would help me um, to just trust you even right now in this moment. And God, I just pray for each of us, whatever it is, the thing that we run to for life, that we would put it down and that we would start running to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our story, this kind of brings us to our story. Israel has fallen. That's the northern kingdom. Israel has completely fallen uh, to Assyria's reign. Um, Assyria's a huge nation with tons of armies, and they have conquered Israel, which is the sister nation of Judah. And... Judah, in fact, nearly all of its fortified cities have now been taken by Assyria. So, like, Jerusalem and um, is, is basically all there is left. And the army of Assyria is, is at the door. They're literally right outside the gate of Jerusalem um, with, like, 194,000 troops. And there's this messenger commander called the Rebshekna, who I'm not going to say that a hundred times. I'm just going to call him the messenger. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. Um, so, so this messenger is basically having a discourse with uh, Hezekiah's um, like spokespeople at the wall. And so that's where, where we come to in our story. Literally, literally all of Israel has been conquered and taken away into exile. Judah's the only remaining one. A lot of their cities have been taken. Hezekiah is in his palace, kind of like, what, what am I going to do? And let's look at how he responds. We're going to read chapter 18, 13 through about verse 25. Just follow along with me. It says, it's in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsuris, and the Rebshekah, how do you say that, with a great army from Lachis to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway up to the washer's field. And they called for the king. There came out to them Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who is over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, 
the son of Asaph, the recorder. So our stage is kind of set. But what did Hezekiah do, like when this army came up against him? It doesn't sound anything like what he what he's described as in verse 1 through 8. He literally just gives up. Like he doesn't even try. He, he literally just totally starts to rely on his wealth. He strips all the gold from the temple. Like God's temple, he strips the gold from. He trusts in himself. Later on, he um, it, it's implied too that he trusted in Egypt to come and save him. I haven't heard God's name anywhere yet about Hezekiah trusting in the Lord in this story. And what happens after this? Like he, Israel was obviously rich still from the days of Solomon. So like he's given them a ton of gold and more than um, the king even asked for. But, but what happens is if you keep on reading, the army is not satiated. Like the king of Assyria isn't going to stop. For all of Hezekiah's wealth and his reliance on his allies, it doesn't stop the enemy. And that really brings us to our second point um, about about trusting trusting our king. Um, and we'll see how it connects in a minute. But the giving into sin. Or giving in the doubt, um, it doesn't satiate the enemy. It intensifies his presence. It doesn't satiate him. It intensifies his presence. You see, when we place our trust in something other than God, um, an idol or whatever it is, Uh, when we put our hope and our trust and our faith in that, it's desperately weak. And it it cannot stand against the crushing power of the enemy. Like, it, it won't hold you. Like, the weight of this world is too much for your idol to hold it up. And it will be crushed. Um, it, it won't satisfy, it, it won't satisfy the enemy. It'll, it'll make things so much worse. Um, there's a couple of really easy examples of this. Um, if I'm really, really hungry, uh, a potato chip promises to, to satisfy that hunger. Right? Like if you look at a bag of Lay's, you know, or for some of you like Pringles, you know, like that can, like you see that can and you're like, oh, that's, that's going to make me feel better. Or like maybe a, maybe some McDonald's french fry. You know, you're like, that, yeah. But if you know anything about french fries or potato chips, you know that um, you can't just eat one, right? You can't just eat one. And in fact, eating one makes it a whole lot worse until you've literally like eaten the whole bag and you're like, I should go to the grocery store and get some more. You know what I mean? Like that's exactly the picture, right? It doesn't. It doesn't satiate you. It makes you want more. Um, it's a lot like a, a drug addict, right? Like I just 
just one more time. And then I'll be good. And then I'll feel better. It's a lot like your idol. Yeah, just, I'll just go through it one more time. Just... It'll make, it'll, it'll make everything, I'll be back to even kill, I'll be good, and then I can kind of move on. But, but giving in, it doesn't satiate you. It makes things worse. It doesn't save you. It enslaves you. And so in this battle to trust, like the, the, the first thing, um, but the second thing that we need to do is fight as hard as we can to keep trusting in the one who really gives life in his timing, not rely on the, the in-the-moment um, relief that an idol can bring. Because ultimately it's going to be like that Beverly drink and it's going to ruin you. <laughs> right? It's going to ruin you. Well, the truth is, though, um, like when I look at this part of like Second Kings chapter eighteen, I really identify with Hezekiah. You know, faced with infinitely smaller challenges than an army of one hundred ninety-four thousand that's already conquered my sister nation, like I have run into the arms of idols for security and rest and safety. Like infinitely smaller challenges than that, I, I've I've done that. And I do it all the time. Um, John Ortberg has a quote that I really identify with. Um, um, and maybe you do too. It, it says, I am disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. I always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. Yet the truth is, I am embarrassingly sinful. I am capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy if someone succeeds more visibly than I do, and I am disappointed at my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray for very long without my mind drifting into a fantasy of angry revenge over some past slight I thought I had long since forgiven, or some grandiose fantasy of achievement. I can convince people I'm busy and productive and yet waste large amounts of time watching television. I identify with Hezekiah. Like, I don't trust God perfectly. And maybe you identify with Hezekiah too. Like, maybe you're looking at your life and going, Man, life's not really defined by trusting God. And maybe you're feeling kind of hopeless. But there is a lot of hope in this passage. Hezekiah's life is not defined by this one moment. Even though it's recorded in Scripture, let, let's look back at verse 5. When, when the author is literally telling us who Hezekiah is, what does he say? It says, let me turn to it. It says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those who were before him for he held fast to the Lord he did not depart from following him. he didn't depart from following but he kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses that that is the identifier of Hezekiah not this moment and so the third thing that we need to see is that your life 
And my life is not defined by our moments of failure or faithlessness. Our life's not defined by that. This is the exact opposite of the gospel. That if my works um, are attributed to me, right, then I'm not called what Hezekiah is called. If Hezekiah's works are attributed to him, he's not the guy that trusted in the Lord. But the beauty of a relationship with God is that he takes his faithfulness and he gives it to you. Hezekiah is the king that trusted God because God gave him that as his identity. He's not doing it perfectly right now, but that's who he is. And he will step into the fullness of it, as we'll see, eventually. And you're in, you and I are in the same boat. You're not fully who God made, made you to be yet, but you are. He, he sees you as perfectly faithful and trusting in him right now. And so you can rest in the fact that you will fail to trust him at times. Um, if, you, if you've been here at all, um, one of the first videos that we showed for the journey had this quote um, from this guy, Pierre de Tyhard. I don't know how to say his name. Um, <laughs> he's French. Uh, but I, it just wrecks me every time I hear it. And I, and I shared it probably a couple times at community group or here and there, so you might be familiar with it. But this is what he says. Uh, Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown and something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on, as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. And I love this part. Only God could say, what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. So give our Lord the benefit of believing that His hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. We need to rest in the truth of Ephesians that says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us has raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Your righteousness is not your own. It's God. For me this morning, you haven't trusted him like, fully with your week this past week and you're feeling like a failure. But you're not. Because your identity is, is God's faithfulness not your own and he is patient and he is he's, he's going to continue to be patient and you will step into the fullness of that 
when you reach glory. So let's just trust him. Let's rest in these, this already not yet. I could, I could stop right there. But there's more to be said. Um, you know, this, this is kind of, this is a battle for us to trust on a daily basis, and in this, um, in this, this battle to trust our King, um, there are constant threats, and most of the time they come in the form of voices in our head from the enemy or from ourselves, um, and so the the fourth thing I think it's number four, yes, is the voices of doubt are a constant threat to trusting God. Voices of doubt are a constant threat to trusting God. Uh, Revelation 12.9 calls Satan, or the enemy, um, one of his names is the accuser of our brothers. And he accuses them day and night. Day and night. All the time he accuses them. And there's really, um, in, at least in this passage, there's two voices of doubt that uh, the enemy of Hezekiah this messenger, this Rabshek, or uh, whatever, is um, is bringing uh, to the to the table. The first voice is the voice of despair. The voice of despair. All right. If we read uh, chapter eighteen, is it nineteen through through twenty-five? We, we'll hear a little bit of some of this. Thus says the great king. This is the messenger speaking to Hezekiah. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? You think that mere words and strategy are powerful war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, and shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with me. My master, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to part on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. The messenger is just keeping on the, the current reality of the situation, which is your ally Egypt is terrible. I've already taken all your cities. I've already conquered your um, your sister kingdom. Um, in fact, it was God himself who told me to come and do this to you. And didn't you remove his altars in high places? Obviously, the king of Syria doesn't have a proper understanding of true worship, but he's just heaping on the reality of the current situation. My army's bigger than yours. Uh, where was your God? Where was your God? Like when when I took all the rest of of, of your cities. He, he he does this literally through most of the passage. He's just taunting Hezekiah, and this is what the enemy does to us. He he, he constantly says, look at, you can't. Look at, look at everything. Look at the circumstance. Look at this sin. You've never conquered it before. Why do you expect to conquer it now? 
Look at the circumstance. This is more than too much for you to handle. You should just give up. You should just give up. That's the, that's the voice, the voice of despair. Um, I think about it like, like whenever I leave my house, um, I have a golden retriever and her name is Haley. And, uh, she is, has worse separation anxiety of any dog. Like she is a professional at despairing. And whenever, whenever Haley, um, whenever we leave the house, like even like this morning I left and Danielle and is still at the house and she's still trying to like get out the door and get in the car with me so that she can not have to leave my presence. But whenever she does, whenever we do leave, she just like, she literally just loses it and is like, you're never coming back. All hope is lost. You know, I should abandon all joy and happiness because life is now over because they left and they're never coming back. But Haley doesn't know the whole story, man. Yeah? She, she, do, she doesn't realize that we're never, ever not coming back. Right? She doesn't realize that we're never, like, going to just leave her at the house and then, you know, move to Alaska and then she'll die in the house because she doesn't have posable thumbs to get out. You know what I mean? Like, like she doesn't realize that. She doesn't know. And I think it's the same way with us when, when like, we, we, we just believe these, these, like, voices of despair that say, you should just give up, you know. And we, and we say, oh, are you a Christian anymore? Because I just, I just feel like I should give up. We don't see that God is never leaving. He's never not coming back. He's never not going to rescue He's going to do it in his timing. Like, I'm not just going to run to Haley because like she, she, she feels bad. There's, there's bigger fish to fry out there, right? But I'm always coming back, and I will always love her, right? I'm, I'm always coming, and that's what God is for us. Like He's always coming back. And so you don't have to believe the lie of despair that gets your, I mean, it really just gets you off of, like, out of that true worship and your mind back on the world. Uh, the second, the second voice uh, that we hear in this passage is the voice of temptation. Verse twenty-eight: The messenger stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, "Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria." Thus says the king: Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. It sounds really good if I'm the people on the wall. In this, in this portion, I didn't read the section before, but he's, he's speaking in Hebrew so that all the people on the wall that are guarding the, the city of Jerusalem so that they can hear him. And he's saying, guys, 
You don't have to die. Just give up and like come. Like my land is good too. You can have some of that. It sounds really nice. Like if I'm an Israelite, like up against like a or a, a Judy 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 I, I don't know up against the the army of Assyria. You know, like that sounds really nice. But but we've seen what exile has done to Israel in the past. He never lives up to his promise, right? We know what happened to them in, in Egypt. They're enslaved. And on top of that, they're God's people. God promised them this same thing in their own land. And if they would just trust in him, he promised more than that. I mean, they're God's chosen people. And uh, this messenger is tempting them away from their identity. Like he's, he, he wants to tempt you with all kinds of sin. Trust in this instead. Like, you can trust me, right? He's going to urge you to forsake your identity. And then when you commit the sin or run to the idol, he tells you that you're not God's child anymore. You see how he just, like, reels you in? Now, I think about my dog Haley again. Um, it's really interesting. The only time, like, if you if anybody, if you ask anybody that knows Haley, then they'll tell you that she's a good dog, that she's obedient. Um, but it's interesting that the only times that Haley ever uh, forsakes that identity are the same times when she's when we're gone, right? She's never gotten into the trash or chewed something up when I'm standing in the room, right? But trash when I'm gone and all is lost. <laughs> It starts looking really good. And she's really tempted to forsake her identity, you know, which is a good dog, you know. And so these temptations, this voice of temptation becomes a lot stronger if you've already given in to the voice of despair, right? It becomes a lot stronger, and it promises some really nice things immediately. But again, they ultimately fail. In my community group, uh, about a month ago, we did this exercise where we spent a week asking God what names he called us. Just saying in prayer, time to prayer, God, what, what do you call me as your child? What do you call me? And then we also, at the same time, um, tried to keep a list of names that we heard the enemy call us or we heard ourselves call us throughout the week. Our list of names that the enemy called us was like here to the floor. Like it was massive. And our list of names that God called us was like that big. And I think it just goes to show that, that like it's really hard to believe what God says about me. Because it sounds too good to be true. It's really easy to believe what the enemy says about you. And so, so maybe let that be your um, your like litmus test of is this is this a like a voice of despair or a voice of temptation trying to lead me out of my identity? Is this really easy to believe about myself that I'm a failure, that I'm a screw up, that I'm not a Christian anymore? 
Like, that's even a thing. You can't not feel that. Like, it's really, really hard to believe what God says about you. It's really hard to trust Him with that. Because it's so not our experience. It sounds too good to be true. But it's not. I mean, in any other part of life, it would be. This is God. So what do we like, do to trust God more deeply? How do we, how do we fight this battle? How do, we, how do we trust our king that he's going and deliver? Let's look at chapter 19, where this story continues. When the messengers come off of the wall, they go back to Hezekiah and they tell him everything that this messenger has said. Um, and in, in verses 1 through 6, he hears it and he tears his, his garments and, he, and he's totally just ruined. But what happens in verse 14? Um, uh, it, well, at, before that, he actually he, he sends his messengers to Isaiah, um, tells, them, tells him what happened. And then Isaiah sends him a letter. And this is where we pick up in, in verse 14 of chapter 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but only the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This sounds like Hezekiah. King to trust the God. It took him a minute. It took him to kind of hit rock bottom and realize, I don't got this. But what does he do? He prays. The fifth thing that we need to see is that prayer is a battle cry against doubt and the enemy. Prayer is a battle cry against doubt and the enemy. He's finally properly responding. Richard Foster um, has this really great quote, and um, it, it, it's just really interesting that when you when you pray, um, a lot of times we uh, kind of a synonym we use that is like we turn to God. Like I'm, I'm going to turn to God and pray. And so to pr- to pray is to trust. Or, or to trust is to pray. That's what I mean to say. To trust is to pray. And to pray is to change. Richard Foster puts it this way. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a notable characteristic of our lives. We'll abandon prayer as a notable characteristic. So maybe you're just asking, how do I trust God more deeply? Pray. 
And I don't mean like, you know, like, you know, sit down at your desk, bow your head, and, you know, close your eyes and pray for four hours. I mean, just talk to God, like, throughout your day, like, in your head. You can do that, you know. Like, you can, as things go on, just, you know, hey, God, I'm, I'm worried about this next meeting at work. Would you, would you help me? Hey, God, I'm, I had this really great opportunity to share the gospel right here. I, I know I do, but I'm really scared. Would you help me? If you can talk to God in any moment, and that's what changes you. That's what makes you look more like Him. It's also one of the primary ways that God has chosen to allow us to affect change for His kingdom. Right? If we look at verses uh, 20 and 28 in chapter 19, Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And then in verse 28, the culmination of what God decides to do because he hears Hezekiah's prayer. Because you have raged against me, Assyria, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook into your nose and my bit into your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And even earlier in the text, um, Isaiah basically says, like, um, like I'm going to put a word in, Hezek- in the king of Assyria's head, and he'll go back to his own land, and he'll be killed by the sword there. He will not attack you. Hezekiah's prayer is heard. Foster, um, again, in his book, um, I'm quoting from his book on spiritual disciplines, uh, which is a fantastic resource, um, especially the section on prayer. And it says, um, in our efforts to pray, it is easy for us to be defeated right at the outset because we have been taught that everything in the universe is already set. And so things cannot be changed. And if things cannot be changed, then why pray? We may gloomily feel prayers could. Uh, we may gloomily feel this, but the Bible does not teach that. The Bible prayers prayed as if their prayers could and would make a difference. And the Apostle Paul gladly announces that we are co-laborers with God. That is, we are working with God to determine the outcome of events. First Corinthians uh, three nine is basically a paraphrase of that. And then he says, it is Stoicism that demands a closed universe, not the Bible. Your view, your high view of God's sovereignty should not affect your view of prayer. Because that is the vehicle. Just like evangelism. You can't say, oh, I'm not going to share the gospel with people because, um, well, God's sovereign. He's already going to save who he's going to save. Like, we know that we don't do that. So why do we apply the same exact thinking to prayer? Like, God will answer your prayer. Jesus said, you don't receive because you don't ask. You know, a really easy way to to pray is to just come to corporate prayer. First Wednesday of every month. Shameless plug. The last thing that we need to see when we're talking about trusting God, trusting our King, maybe 
arguably the only thing that you need to hear this morning if you've been struggling with placing your trust more deeply in him or if you felt like he's not there or if he feels absent to you. And that is that God always delivers. Always. He always delivers. Always. He never doesn't deliver. It, it may take some time. Like, it may not be in the time frame that you want it to be. <laughs> if I know anything about life, it's almost never when I want it to be because I'm super impatient. <laughs> you know, or if it happens immediately, I wish that would have taken longer because I wanted to hold on to that. Like, you can't win in this. Like, it, <laughs> he always delivers, though. He always, always, always delivers. He does, he does this for Hezekiah. And he does this for Jerusalem. Right, if we read um, 35 to 38, the final bit in this passage, chapter 19. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold... These were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash his god, Adremelech and Sharazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshradon, his son, reigned in his place. Miracle. Like, this whole reality, like, situation that Israel is placed in seemed in immensely hopeless uh, or Judah and Hezekiah failed at trusting God initially right like he wasn't perfect in his trust he eventually trusted God but God still delivered him could God have delivered him right at the beginning of like this whole thing could God have delivered Israel before um, all the fortified cities were taken could he have done it before Israel was exiled yeah, he could have, but he he didn't. He chose to he chose to wait and let Hezekiah learn deeper trust in him. This is what God does when it feels like he's not there. He's calling you to deeper trust in him. He will always deliver. This is this is the promise of the gospel. You're already delivered if you're a believer in Jesus, and all. If you're not if you're not a believer, if, if if you don't have salvation this morning through faith in Jesus, all he asks you to do is say, Jesus, I, I trust you with my life. I, I want to give my life to you. I, I I can't do this on my own. I need deliverance. He's he's already delivered the believer. He's already delivered you from Satan, sin, and death. And one day he's going to make all things new and perfect. He's already delivered. And in, in each of the circumstances and sins that each of you and I are dealing with, he's going to deliver in his time for your good and for his glory. He's going to. He's absolutely going to. So I just have a few questions that maybe you want to write down. Maybe you want to uh, just ask yourself throughout the week.
The first one is, what idol do I run to in difficulty as a source of rest and security? What idol do I run to in difficulty as a source of rest and security? Two, what are my consistent doubts about God's promises? What are my consistent doubts about God's promises? Um, um, this guy, Dallas Willard, has this quote that says, The adult members of church today rarely raise serious religious questions for fear of revealing their doubts or being thought of as strange. God's big enough to handle your doubts. So, like, confront them. What are your doubts about God's promises? Uh, three, what's the thing in this world that tempts you to despair? What is the one thing in this world that tempts you to despair? And then lastly, who in your life, who in this church, can you trust with the answers to these questions? Who can you trust with the answers to these Go to them, pray for healing, pray for salvation, ask for these people to pray for you. That's one of the things that Hezekiah did that we didn't get a chance to talk about. He asked Isaiah to pray for him. And if you don't have these people, seek them out. And find them. God's worthy to be trusted. And he'll always deliver. So you can just rest in there this morning, whatever's going on. Let's pray. Father, we know that we just trust you imperfectly so often. And uh, God, we just ask now that you would even help us rest um, in, the, in the fact that we're not always going to trust you perfectly, but that you've given us um, a name that is faithful. We are faithful children. We trust you because that's that's who we are in Jesus. You see Jesus, who perfectly trusted you um, in his in his in his time on on earth. He trusted every every move he made, and so God, we want to be like that, and we know that you've already given us that in our spirit. So God, help us step into the fullness of the measure of faith with which we've been given. And give us strength to keep, keep going.